if you want your kid to stop doing something, you can yell at them from across the room and like they don't listen to you. But if you like cross the room and you like get down on your knees to your eye level and you like put a gentle hand on their shoulder and say like, hey, I need you to not whatever lick the dog's face. It's not okay. The dog doesn't appreciate it. It's not healthy for you. The difference between that version of parenting and I'm making dinner and I don't feel like walking over there and I'm like, Miles, stop licking the dog's face. You get a totally different reaction. Welcome to Startup Dad, the podcast where we dive deep into the lives of dads who are also leaders in the world of startups and business. I'm your host, Adam Fishman, and in this episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Matt Greenberg. Matt is the former CTO at Reforge and VP of Engineering at Credit Karma. He is a husband and the father of three kids. In this enlightening episode, Matt shares his journey from his early days in Massachusetts, where he developed a fascination with computers, to his role as the Chief Technical Officer at Reforge. He recounts his experiences working in various roles, from research and development at a startup to leading a large engineering team. Matt's career has been marked by his ability to be the glue that holds everything together, a trait he attributes to his father's influence. He talks about meeting his partner in Southern California and their decision to start a family. He shares the joys and challenges of raising three boys, including one with special needs, and the dynamics of their family life. He also reflects on the influence of his father, a self-employed lawyer, on his life and career. This episode provides a candid look into the life of a technology leader, offering insight into balancing a successful career with a fulfilling family life. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So Matt, thank you for doing this with me. I've been having a lot of fun with these. Tell me a little bit more about you and your background. This is the part where we can actually talk about your professional life a little bit. I'm originally from Massachusetts. I'm in my early 40s. So I'm of that age where it was like computers being a thing in someone's house was like a thing I watched happen. Yep. And, you know, probably just thought it was like the coolest thing on the planet. And when I was a kid, I would like take library books out that were like how to program and you would write it into the DOS window and edit. And then I figured out Linux and, you know, was off to the races with my dial-up modems. And I think that just like knew that was the thing I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. After graduating with a computer science degree, my first job was doing research and development for a startup, mostly in AI. Mm -hmm. And real bummer for me, but ended up meeting a bunch of people who were like definitively smarter than I was. And I was like, oh, shit. I thought I was really smart, that I could be good at this computer thing. But I realized the things I was good at, they were often not good at. Mm. And so like I did a lot of the project management, customer demos, you know, reporting on what we were working on to leaders and executives and talking to them about it. So whereas like the PhDs didn't want to do any of that stuff. No. So like by the second year of my career, you know, like I was reporting on our projects at the board meetings and like did a demo for the director of the FBI and stuff like that. That company got bought by Lockheed Martin and that was terrible and made me not ever want to work in a large company again. And then ever since then, I've been just trying to lean into all of the glue that makes software work where I thought like maybe I could be the best in the world at something instead of just like purely trying to write the best code where I think there were just people who were better at that. So that sort of led me to Reforge, where 
I run product engineering, design, and data, and get to sort of like run the whole gamut of how we ship great stuff. Nice. And I think that's super fun. Yeah. I've heard it described as you run all the pixels and bits of the company. It's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Probably more than that too. But yeah, and it's really interesting because, you know, I've heard other engineering leaders who haven't written code in a long time talk about, used to have an engineering leader that I worked with used to say things like, well, I haven't done any real work since the 90s. But- Mm. You describing yourself as like the glue that holds everything together. I mean, that is real work. That's some of the hardest work in a company too. So I'm glad that someone who cares about this is doing it. Yeah. I mean, it's been a big advantage to care about it because I think a lot of people don't and they think of it as like not the fun part. I will say it's really nice every once in a while to like write some code or do something in SQL because like you have a task. You do the task, you ship, the task is done. But when it comes to people stuff, it's like hard to know if you ended your week actually doing anything meaningful, which is probably why like sometimes at 10 PM, I get started on some random engineering task I shouldn't do and am up till three in the morning just because I want that like dopamine boost of shipping something. Though I don't really put any code in production. (laughs) They don't let you. Probably not. (laughs) You're right that like people things are measured over very long time horizons, right? The output of that is changing somebody's career, having them make a decision differently. And you may not always have an obvious observation of that, but writing a query, right? That gives you the thing that you're looking for, very tangible, very like right now. So I get it. That's it. I get it. So tell me a little bit about, you mentioned you grew up in Massachusetts. Tell me about what life was like as a kid. Did you live in the suburbs? Did you live in, you know, Southie? Where are you from? What was life like? Yeah, I I grew up in the very nice suburbs of the North Shore of Boston, small town called Marblehead. I was about 90 yards away from Salem, Massachusetts, which is fame. Which trails? Yeah, like as a kid. I like loved Halloween until I got a car and all of Salem shuts down. You like can't leave Marblehead without driving through Salem. It was like the worst month of the year. And I became really curmudgeon-y about Halloween until I had kids and they like broke me down yeah. to like it again. But yeah, I hated it when I grew up there. I just thought like everyone was the same. They didn't talk about interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. Nothing exciting happened. As a parent, I'm like, wow great schools, giant backyards, Mm -hmm. like idyllic neighborhoods, you know, it's kind of the American dream, like white picket fences type of place. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I live in Oakland, so that's not really like a thing I guess I was seeking. Yeah. Um, Yeah, You don't have tons of suburban acreage in, in Oakland right now? No, actually, random funny parenting story, but because I work from home now, I try and take like a one-on-one on the phone every once in a while just to like get out of the same room. Yeah. And I was walking my dog, talking to our head of design. And like my wife called me at like four in the afternoon and I was like, she doesn't usually call me. Uh-huh. So I answered and she's like, have you seen Miles? Who's our middle kid? And I was like, no, I'm like half a mile from the house in the middle of nowhere. And you know, there are no sidewalks up right. here, but it's also... A nice neighborhood, but it's not, it's Oakland, yep, right? Yep. And she was like, Miles has left. I don't know where he is. I don't know what's going on, but he's like left. And he tried to walk about like two blocks to his friend's house, which is probably like half a mile without telling anybody okay. just to have a little play. 
And I was like, it's Oakland, man. Like, what are you doing? But like in Marblehead, I could do that. All oh, sure. Back then and never matter. Yeah. Right sidewalks for days in Marblehead, right? Sidewalks for days yeah. in Marblehead. Plus, you probably knew all of your neighbors, right? They're like popping out on the porch like, hey, Matt, you know, hey, you know, totally. oh, hey, Miss Jones. I mean, you probably knew like 80% of the town. Yeah. Not so these days. At least not in, in Oakland or where a lot of folks live outside of city centers and stuff. So what about your parents? What were your parents like? Did they leave pretty boring suburban existence? Were they crime fighters on the weekends? Like, what did they do? Yeah, my mom was a stay-at-home mom until we went to school. Mm -hmm. And then when my younger sister started school, she was like an office manager at various places for a bunch of years, like made Christmas tree ornaments, sold printer ink like that sort of thing. Sounds a lot like my mom, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, she was about like as prototypical Jewish mom as you could get without the accent. And then my dad was a self-employed criminal defense and immigration lawyer. Wow. She mostly tried to help people who were on some form of like light criminal charge not get deported. Mm -hmm. And he... Yeah, like worked in an office in Cambridge, Massachusetts of like Harvard and MIT fame, yep. just like a couple blocks from there with like a bunch of other self-employed lawyers. So, you know, he would come home and regale us of his genius in solving people's problems. And that was like his real like happy place. And then we could go to all sorts of restaurants on the North Shore and eat for free. Oh, um, fun. There was this Russian place I remember going to all the time and the owner would always come out when we were there and make my dad drink a shot with him. And then they would throw the glasses on the ground. Like every single time we went there, it's like drilled into my head. He passed away probably like five or six years ago. Mm -hmm. And, but he was probably like my hero, mm. you know, the person I wanted to grow up to be like, yeah, wanted to be a lawyer. He was like, lawyers, it's the worst job. Don't do it. <laughs> so he like talked me out of that. And then uh, it wasn't until he passed away that I realized he had a few like good years, but for the last like 15 years, he had never been a good business person, basically. Wow. Yeah. So he died like deeply in debt. And that was a complicated thing to untangle while also dealing with the fact that your hero was dead. So, yeah. What's sort of like a piece of advice or wisdom or something that you took from your dad that you sort of apply in your own life as a parent now? You know, like probably the real answer that is not super modest, but it's like, I think he was always just proud of being smart mm -hmm. and like tried to use like he really prized like outsmarting people and like thinking through things. Yeah. And I think that made me always want to just like be savvy and like quick yeah. and and witty. So I'm sure that's like very foundational. My therapist would probably say like that answer is very true <laughs> and describes some of my good and bad qualities. Yeah. Well, I feel like he always made time for us. I think I wanted to be a dad because I loved my dad so much mm -hmm. and just like wanted to be that person. Yeah. So the thing I always wanted to do and one like practical, like thing he would say was cause he worked for himself. He would say, I never do work. I could pay someone else to do. That's less than what an hour of my time would take. Mm -hmm. So like if you could just work and bill for an hour versus, you know, fix the plumbing, right. Even if he knew how to do it, he'd rather like pay a plumber if it was cheaper than working for an hour. Yeah. But he would happily work on his like motorcycle for six hours, even though he could pay someone to do it in yeah. an hour correctly. Yeah. So 
ironically why I basically don't know how to do like any household chores whatsoever. Yeah, a friend referred to that as being, and this is true of me too, as being Jewish handy, which means you know how to call a guy when you need something fixed. I like that. Yeah, Yeah. that was how he refers to his dad himself. It's very true of me and my dad, possibly true of you and yours as well. My dad was surprisingly handy. Oh, okay. He just didn't pass any of it down to me. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds like you understand the importance of leverage, right? Like, I think a lot of people don't value their own time as much as they should, which I think is pretty fascinating. So sounded like he did. Well, I guess what I would say is as soon as you become a parent, especially of two kids or more, you like really heavily value your time. Yeah. That is an excellent segue into the next thing I want to talk about, which is tell me about your partner. I don't know if you refer to her as your wife or your spouse or your partner, but how did the two of you meet? How did you like come to be in the Bay Area together? I usually do call her my partner, Mm -hmm. but my wife and I met at a bar. My roommate unsuccessfully hit on her, but we met that way. And then I love that story. Like saw each other around town after that and became friends. And then fun fact, first time I tried to kiss her, she wasn't ready for it. And we knocked teeth, but we've been (laughs) married for 11 years. So something must have gone right. We actually met in Southern California and she had not gone to college after high school and instead like took a gap year or two Mm -hmm. and like traveled around Europe and did a bunch of other stuff. So she was in community college when we met and had hoped to transfer to UCLA and I had hoped to leave LA behind Mm -hmm. and convinced her to check out the Bay area because I wanted to move up here and she ended up getting into Berkeley and loved it when she visited. So we moved up for that, and I've lived in the East Bay ever since. Awesome. So that was 2009. Yeah. So you now have three kids, right? You have all boys, right? You have a very male, very testosterone-fueled household, right? How old are your boys? It's not a super testosterone household, okay. but yeah, we have three boys. Reese is nine. He'll be 10 in a month. He's in fourth grade. Miles is seven. He's in second grade and Griffin is three and he's in preschool. So tell me about the decision to have kids. What was the decision like to start a family? When I actually met my partner, she was nannying for two families, one of whom was her cousin. Mm -hmm. And I think that experience was just like grueling. Yeah. And she had wanted to have kids, but she like wasn't really sure anymore after that, if she was still confident she did. I told her it was something that was important to me. And once when we moved up to Northern California, I didn't want her to get a job um, because I was like, you deserve to be able to go to school full time. Mm -hmm. And I'm a software engineer. So like, we are fine. We're like living together. We did this. Like, I don't care. You don't need to do that thing. And I think that was a real hard thing for her. But I was like, I got to just go to college. It was super important that I was able to focus on my work. I want you to just be able to like focus on your work for a while. So she thought that was a good idea after thinking about it for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the space of just being in school made her like more interested in doing that again, but she wanted to use her degree. So when she graduated, she was working, she did a degree in international development at Berkeley. And she started working for an organization called Kiva and another organization called the Global Fund for Women. 
And then we got married like a year later and probably like three months after we got married, she was like, you know what? I actually want kids now. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, okay. All right. Like, cool, cool. Let's do this thing. So I had always wanted to do it. So it was like just when she wanted to. And then one day she told me she wanted to, and I was like, great, let's practice and see where we get. And, you know, something caused it and we have three kids now. Yeah. Did you always know that you were going to go for three kids or is it? Yeah. yeah. I think like three is the modern era eight or something like that. (laughs) I think we both wanted two kids Mm -hmm. and then you have one and you're like, well, that's the hardest thing I've ever done. But then like sometime around 18 months, they're really cute all the time and you Mm -hmm. forget all of the hard work. So we're like, okay, let's have a second. So we did that. And then that was really hard, like non-linearly more difficult than one. And thus the gap, extra gap in this one. But we had a long conversation of kid three or dog. Mm. And she was in the dog camp and I was in the kid three camp. And then one of her friends had a baby and we like went to visit them and she was holding it and smelling its head and was like, okay, kid three. Mm. And luckily her two best friends in the Bay area, like her and both of them all got pregnant within like three months of each other or something like that. So they all had kids at like the same time and they're kind of like growing up as a cohort, but they're younger than we are. So those are their first kids. Ah, So we have like a different dynamic with that one. And then during the pandemic, we got a dog. So the whole system is complete. You checked all the boxes at this point. Who is in charge of the dog? Is a dog yours, your wife's? your kids who's on point for dog duty it's a question i should carefully answer in case anyone else listens to this podcast as no, a podcast no one's gonna um, listen to it don't worry so we have two cats that we had before the kids okay who are now old and senile mm-hmm. and one of the reasons i didn't want a dog is i do so for those who don't know there's this thing in cat poop called toxoplasmosis. So pregnant women yes, can't, aren't supposed to clean or be near yeah. cat poop. Yeah. And then she's like mildly allergic to cats, though right. she wanted them. And then like our cats had a medical issue. So like they need medication every day, but they're like much more likely to scratch or like you get like a little bite, which then she has a reaction to. Mm-hmm. So once she got pregnant, which is now 10 plus years ago with kids, I've cleaned the cat boxes ever since. And I do the medicine, which happens with the food. So like I do a lot of the yeah. feeding. Though recently this has changed a little bit after some discussions. So okay. but I was like, hey, if we have a dog, I'm gonna do all this stuff again, aren't I? And no, definitely. It's gonna be us and me and the kids. Uh-huh. I do think that we like split a lot of the duties with the dog. I do a decent amount of them, but I actually like walking a dog. It's way more pleasant than I thought it would be. Yeah. As long as it's good on the leash. Right. If it's like a struggle, yeah, then it's not very fun. But I bet you have a very well behaved totally. dog. So uh, medium. Yeah. Okay. I wanted to transition a little bit and talk about more about your like earliest memories of fatherhood. What is that earliest memory that you have after you became a dad? I mean, like the first moments are pretty memorable. I'll just go back like a tiny bit, but we lived in Berkeley when we got pregnant. Berkeley, what, like the hippiest city in the United States, probably. They're probably hippier towns, but like if you classify as a city, it's like Berkeley is the one that's famous for that. Yeah. So when we got pregnant, 
like I think we both assumed we would, you know, like have a baby in the hospital with the OBGYN and we had met an OBGYN who we had started talking to, but we'd also been introduced to the idea of home birth. Mm-hmm. And we actually asked our OB about it and she was like, look, I could lose my license if I answer this question, but I, if you tell no one, you know, you're healthy, it's totally fine. I would watch like these three documentaries. So then we went and watched those three documentaries and we were like, oh, that's pretty interesting. And we read some books and started checking out like options. And we ended up deciding to have a home birth. Mm -hmm. And so we were in our apartment at that point, we'd moved to Oakland. I remember like she started feeling contractions. And for those who've only ever watched birth on television, right? Like you can start feeling contractions like many hours before like anyone needs to go to a hostel or a baby comes out. So like she started feeling contractions. We went and got breakfast. Mm -hmm. We went to whole foods and got some like snacks and we were like watching my cousin Vinny while like her contractions intensified. And then, you know, like I think it started at like five in the morning, but things started probably getting serious at like three, four in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. And then we ended up having the baby at probably like 8 PM, Mm -hmm. something like that. And right after he was born, he wasn't breathing for like longer than is normal. And I don't even remember when someone did it, but one of the midwives who was there had called 911 and my wife was singing to him Edelweiss, which was what she had like sung to him in her belly. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden he took that like first big breath. And I was probably honestly like 45 seconds to a minute, but you know, like it doesn't feel like that in my memories or my mind. Yeah. And then of course he's fine no side effects or anything of that were at all obvious. And then, you know, like whatever, two minutes later, four six foot five plus giant firemen came plowing through the door. Axes in hands. Yeah. You know, and then like two EMTs, we had a small apartment back then. And, you know, like she's naked on the couch in the living room with the baby on her chest. I had my shirt off, I think. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's just these giant people there and they're like, you know, they had asked a few questions. They were like, you look like you have everything under control. We don't really need to be here. So, you know, congratulations, good luck, and have fun. And then I remember our midwives tucking us into bed uh-huh. and leaving. And there's like the three of us had a quiet, like 15 minutes of just like talking. And then we all went to sleep in our bed in our apartment, woke up the next morning. Midwives brought us scones and coffee. And that first night was just like uneventful and easy and being in our own house. It was like this cocoon. Oh yeah. Yeah. So that's what I remember. Wow. That's amazing. I imagine that experience too, though, with your son first, not breathing was probably pretty terrifying though. Right. Even if it was only 45 seconds or a minute. Yes. And also no, like we, I don't know. It's like hard to conceive. I definitely had like that series of thoughts of, you know, playing forward the future with my like wife's shattered soul Mm -hmm. at our child dying and how like world changing that would be like happened in that time. But it also seemed like an impossible eventuality Mm -hmm. at that same moment. Like this can't happen. And then it didn't happen. So at the same level, you're just like, okay, cool. Yeah. We're good. Everything's good. Yeah. Sort of like miles wandering off. In Oakland yesterday, you know, he was gone for like seven minutes and I definitely had the picture of him like 
hit by a car right lying in a ditch on the side of the road mangled body and finding that but at the same time i'm like he is probably fine right. and would you have to like go find yeah. him and it did not take long right and then all of a sudden you're like yeah of course you're fine you dumbass don't leave the house without telling anybody right like <laughs> yeah so now that you're a dad of three you've got a lot of experience to draw on what are some of the most surprising things that you've discovered as a dad so i'm a trained extrovert I definitely think I spent a lot of my life as an introvert. I had like some introverted tendencies to go with my extroverted tendencies. And probably now that I have like some familiar with autism, like it wouldn't surprise me if I was like somewhere on the spectrum, like humans are weird. Yeah. And sometimes I like don't have emotions that I think other people would have. So the thing I was the most scared of at first was like, would I love my child? And like, is that a thing I would feel? And he answered that and was like, definitively yes in like the first minute i was like okay cool mm-hmm. We're, we've, we've crossed that threshold yeah we're good we've crossed that chasm, yeah. right but then i think there was this whole thing of like how will the love split up between my partner and myself and the kid mm. and then you worry about that even more with the second kid like what happens there and i think one of the things that surprised me is the reason people have children and deal with all of the shit and we can talk about that part in a minute but like is because there's actually just like net more love in your life mm. you know the reason we spend all this time like dating people and trying to find someone you love as a partner is because love is fucking awesome it like lifts you to great places it makes things possible it like fills your life with a joy that you just don't have in the same way without it and then like kids on the outside like a shitload of work anyone who does it it feels like an insane amount of decision but then you have this little being and there's no like law of conservation of love. There's just like more love yeah. every single day. Yeah. And you're just like, wow, I have moments that are just like so much better than I ever had as a single person that I ever could have had as a partnership. Now that there's a extra person and you're like, oh my God, how does it happen with like a second kid? And then there's like net more love in your life. And that's awesome because every person who enters your orbit also brings their bullshit with them. (laughs) And like your partner brings a certain amount of bullshit to your life. Kids bring a shitload of bullshit to your life. So it's like everyone has like this little sine wave type of thing of like how much bullshit they have at any minute. And it's like when everyone's bullshit lines up as high, like there's just a lot of shit going on. You know what I mean? So like, thank God there's a lot of love to power you because Holy crap, there's just like a lot of shit going on all the time. So it's like, even when everybody is at, it's like, it's like basin of the amount of shit going on. It's like way more shit that I had to deal with when I was a single right. person, like higher than the peak of my sine wave. Right. But you know, like during the pandemic, when like all of us had sh- shit, beyond shit going on, like every week was harder than the week before, yeah. basically. Like you were just like digging yourself this giant hole of shit and you're like, thank God you know, like the moment when everyone's like cuddling on the couch, watching the movie and like the kids are snuggling in deep to you and your heart's just like exploding with happiness. Like, thank God you have those moments to carry. You yeah. Through. That's like the fuel that powers you through the dark times. Right. You just mentioned COVID and I want to hear what parenting was like. We've talked about this a bit outside of recorded time previously, but I'd love to hear you, you changed a lot of things you did. You had to change a lot of your I think professional life a bit and stuff during COVID. So I'd love to hear how you balanced, how you managed 
three kids, a partner, you know, a fast growing startup where you are one of the yeah. handful of leaders at the company. Like, how do you make all that work during a global pandemic? Well, and back then I was what, like six months into Reforge yeah. or something like yeah. that. And there was a small team, you know, like we were like 15 or something to 20, maybe at that point. I mean, obviously it was shitty. Yeah. One of the ways that we've made our life work is we're big supporters of the au pair system, mm-hmm. which is where like a foreigner comes to your house on a visa for a year or two and in exchange for room and board and a stipend will like basically be a nanny for you. Mm-hmm. And so we had had au pairs for a few years before the pandemic started. A new person was supposed to come in May of 2020 and our current au pair was supposed to leave. Mm-hmm. Both of them ironically from Italy. And when the pandemic was starting, if you remember, like Italy was hit oh, super hard. Yes, I remember. And our au pair was like terrified about like her family getting sick and dying. So we were like, look, we can survive two months without you. You should go home. Like you don't have to be here. That's like not stress that's worth having. Mm-hmm. But then there was a travel ban the visas were canceled and we didn't have no pair until february of 2022 wow so we went without childcare support for almost two years wow and so like at one point early in the pandemic i had my toddler was like what like one Mm -hmm. then so i was working on our front deck on a standing desk and had the whole area fenced off and i was parenting a one-year-old while I worked and my wife was doing remote school for our two elementary school students at the time, mm-hmm. kindergarten and second grade. And like trying to just like get them to do that during yeah. the day. Good luck for, you know, like, <laughs> so like I had him for like four or five hours during remote school. And then my wife would take like all the kids in the afternoon, but it's like those hard days when everything's going on, you know, hopefully like you get to a, saturday or whatever like a friday and you can recharge but during the pandemic there was like no recharge yeah so like six months in we're like okay i dug this well and emptied it but like i'm gonna keep digging and you'll be like well there's a little bit more water okay i'm gonna keep digging and you're just like we dug that well deeper than i mean like we're still coming things are good our living you know, pair back like we figured a bunch of stuff out you know pandemic trajectory difference, school, in session, all these things happening. But like, I don't think we're back to where we were pre-pandemic yet. Mm -hmm. Like just us and confidence and feeling in control of things. Yeah. Did you and your family get COVID at any point? I was going to say like six weeks ago, we got COVID for the first time. Wow. That's pretty close to us too. We got it at the end of May. So. Yeah. And when we had this au pair come, we were pretty conservative the whole time. Mm-hmm. So when we had this au pair come, you know, they were like, I want to be able to travel and do stuff. And those are things we hadn't been doing, but she was going to live in our house. So we we're just like, well, if we allow this, like we're substantially increasing our likelihood of getting it. So she got COVID and then we got it yeah. from her. You kind of hinted at this when we were just talking about autism. And I know one of your sons was pretty recently diagnosed as being autistic and being on the spectrum. Tell me what that journey was like. It's interesting. I forget all the terminology for this. The doctor calls him high functioning, 
which I think the autism community doesn't like that term. So I think that means like type one autism is like maybe the term they're using now. I don't remember the which end of the spectrum sure. he's on, but he's like on like that the first nugget of that yeah. spectrum. As a little kid, we always just thought he was a sensitive soul. Mm-hmm. And there was like a bunch of things that triggered him and he like didn't regulate his emotions well, but we thought it was like in the bounds of norm. Sure. And I think my wife and I are not sound weird or different from others, but like particularly conscientious parents. So like, I think we handled that stuff pretty well and gave him like a lot of framework for it. And then he started school at a school in Oakland that was known for being good at the socio-emotional side, which was something we had sought out. And he had some like challenges, but like they were managing it well. And then when the pandemic started, Oakland elementary school system sucks. They shut down his amazing school, public school, because most of the people who work for the district are idiots. And he had transferred to a new school. So like his school shut down, what, six weeks after the pandemic started. So then we did remote school the next year. Um, So we like didn't meet any of those people. And then the year after that, we had in-person school. So like his interaction with kids his age was incredibly limited for that period of time and then i remember his first day at the new school he came home and just like hated Mm -hmm. it and then we started talking to school because there were these two kids who were like picking Mm -hmm. on him and he didn't really like know how to handle it and parents weren't allowed on campus and we didn't know any of the people and we had no interaction with them but he would come home and be like oh you know uh, I couldn't eat lunch at the table because they wouldn't like make a space for oh. me. And, you know, there was this kid who was right in front of him in line and would like knock into him. And he's like, you know, and then that kid would apologize, but he would be upset. Mm-hmm. And I think probably like four or five weeks into the school year, they did it enough that he just like snapped. Mm-hmm. And so we got the call. He like punched this kid and he gotten suspended. And we we're like, what is happening? You know, just like mind blowing, but you know, like every morning he would cry mm-hmm. about having to go to school and we we're like trying to figure out what to do about it. The pandemic was super messed up and like big emotional childcare yeah. crisis. So like, we're like trying to find doctors to talk to him and you know, like a lot of those people like weren't working or had, you know, like it's like October and they're like, we can make you an appointment in February, right. which feels like. Or we can do it over Zoom and you're like, they're not quite the same as seeing them in person, you know? And it was really interesting because like we ended up doing an online appointment for like 50 Mm -hmm. minutes. We had a bunch of paperwork we had to fill out with and like 40 minutes into after talking to him, they sent him out and talked to us and like, we think your kid has autism. And we're just like, what? You know, like 50 minutes on the phone and you're like, there. And then a couple of weeks later, the school came back after doing an assessment and said like, we also we think he has autism mm-hmm. and we're like, okay. Like, so we like started to figure out and a lot of those pieces matched like behaviors mm-hmm. we had, but like lucky for us, like a lot of the mitigations they talk about are things we had like naturally done and environments we had like naturally put him in. But some of the stuff in the pandemic and the situation I think had been specifically bad for him. And then his lack of, you know, social awareness and capability and ability to handle like social adversity. Yeah and control reactions to it had sort of just like snapped. Sure. But once we had the autism diagnosis, we started getting support from the school 
And that like was night and day going from like no support at school to support at yeah. school. We like ended the school year on a decent trajectory. The first four days of school this year are like completely different from yeah. last year, but still not like it was before the pandemic. You know, like I think he has deep trepidation and fourth graders are also horrible people, like probably the worst, you know, like the next four years are real hard yeah. for people without social yeah. skills, but I think being able to have like a name for not calling him a sensitive soul, but realizing he has like neurological differences yeah. and you have to like have different expectations and manage them in different ways was powerful for us. Cause we like, were able to like put words to things and find more techniques for dealing with mm -hmm. stuff, but also like telling people that your kid's kind of sensitive, they're like, Oh, whatever, right. you know, you shouldn't act like that. But telling someone your kid has autism and they're like, Oh, okay. Yeah that explains why this thing happened. And I, they're like so much more forgiving or willing to like support us through that process. So actually the diagnosis has been like a real blessing, but it's also like then our other kids copy him. And then you're like, cause you know, he's their yeah. older brother. So then you're like, okay, are they on the spectrum too? Or are they just like copying their brother? Like, how do I deal right. with these things? I have no idea. Anyway, those are challenges we'll tackle as we get to them. Yeah. I have heard a lot from talking to folks who I know whose children are autistic that, you know, advocacy is a really big part of how your role changes. You're always supposed to be an advocate for your kids as a parent, but it becomes yeah. even more so when you realize that you have a neurodivergent kid. And so I'm curious about like how that's changed for you. And then maybe like a framework, you know, we talk a lot about frameworks professionally. I know you're a frameworks guy. So I'd love to hear about like a parenting framework that's helped you. It could be with your oldest son, or it could be with just the dynamic at home or emotional mm -hmm. regulation or things like that. I think this is a hard set of topics. So I'm curious yeah. how you've managed through it. Advocacy, I think through this process has been super hard for us mm -hmm. because we are rich, white, cisgendered people in Oakland, California, diverse mm -hmm. place. My wife's actually from South Africa. I grew up there during the apartheid. Mm. And I think really important to her that our kids grew up in a racially diverse place. And like, yeah, I think she feels some level of like, you know, as a complete child, didn't totally understand what was going on around her. Mm. But I think feels like a, doesn't want her kids to grow up anything like that. I think if there's like one thing we want is for our kids to be good humans. So you know, like important for us that like our kids go to public school and they like, participate in the process and they're like around other people who are different from them. So then when your kid's having trouble at school, at a public school, advocating for them feels weird. Yeah. Right? Cause you're like, I don't want resources to go to my kid. Cause that kind of like disagrees with almost like my politics. Yeah. But at the same time, I think like recognizing that there's a standard set of things that are supposed to happen for neurodivergent kids. But advocacy, also an interesting word. Like, I don't know if you know this, but there's a whole class of mostly ex-lawyers who act as what they call advocates in the United States. Mm. And their job, you pay them like lawyer hourly rates to help bust through the red tape of trying to deny special needs kids the support they deserve mm -hmm. in schools. And then, so like our friend like introduced us to this advocate who wanted like $250 an hour to help us like wow. get our kid the support they were supposed to from school. And we we're like, but if we didn't have that money, like what support would they 
get. So like we felt we actually decided we couldn't do that. Like we felt uncomfortable yeah. going through that process. But that's like the norm, you know, that like that's how most people do it. Instead, we figured out how to do all that stuff. And there's so much process. So like, for example, a friend of ours had a bunch of issues. So there's this thing called an IEP at the school. Yeah. Can't ask for an IEP. You can ask for an assessment for an IEP. So right. if you ask for an IEP, the school says, like, we don't think that's appropriate. If you ask for an assessment for an IEP, they are required to respond to that by yes. law. So if you don't say the word assessment, you don't get support. Yeah. And in fact, if you ask for an assessment, they start by default giving you an academic. There are different types of assessments. So they'll pick a type of assessment. So like one of our friends had a kid with challenges, found out they needed to ask for an assessment, asked for an assessment, but they only did academic assessment and the kid's doing okay academically. And then they found out they had to ask for a behavioral assessment, which they, you know, in each of those processes, they have like 90 days to respond. So sure. Like you're going through the bureaucracy for bureaucracy's sake. Yeah. I don't know. Advocacy, let's just say, is a thing that you basically have to do. Yeah. So like when our kid was getting picked on, I was like, felt uncomfortable at first saying something. Then it started escalating and I was like, okay, I have to say something. So like we escalated that and then he got into the fight and that was the first time the principal had gotten involved mm -hmm. and they were like, well, this isn't okay. And I'm like, well, but it's this kid who's been picking on him and we have all these emails we've been sending to the teacher asking to like do something about it. And they were like, well, I didn't know. <laughs> and then I remember that the principal calls me back on my cell phone afterwards and is like, Hey, I talked to the kid and I don't want to call it bullying because that means a specific thing, but mm. I confirm that all the behaviors that you said are happening, were happening, and we're going to address that. And then I'm just like, okay, <laughs> but like, how do I like deal with these things? Yeah. And it's weird because it's sort of like HR in a business. Like it's the best version of HR is happy employees, but like fundamentally it's there to protect the company. Right. And make sure that like you don't have lawsuits and stuff like that. Like you're in compliance with things. Right. The school is kind of the same way. Like the best thing for them is they teach your kids and they're happy. But like the worst thing for them is like they get in trouble. Like they can't get in trouble. So they like protect themselves from getting in trouble. You're just like at some point our incentives are misaligned. Right. But we want to get back into the like things are going well and we have nothing to complain about. Not in the like you're not meeting your legal obligation to do these things. Right. So like, even after you get the IEP, it's this legal obligation to do stuff. And then if at points we found that they weren't doing what they were supposed to do because they didn't have the resources. And on some level, I'm like, hey, I get it. Like, you don't have the yeah. resources. Like, the city is not providing you with all the stuff that you need. And you have a ton of extra kids who are having issues post the pandemic. But at the same time, you know, like, that's what you're legally obligated to do. Right. So if I don't hold you to that, you are literally not going to do it. Like you've demonstrated that to me. So advocacy complicated. Yeah. Probably like went beyond what you were expecting for that part of the answer. No, that's um, fantastic. I had no idea. I had heard about the language around assessment versus asking for an IEP, which IEP, by the way, is an individualized educational plan or something. Education like that. plan. Yeah. And I only know that because I had friends who worked in special education for a long time. And so they would talk about it all the time because it's a lot of work for the teachers to do reviews of that stuff. You like see how bureaucracy happens and why it happens. Yeah. And then what the cost of all of that stuff, it's taking it back to work, but like 
everyone always wants to solve problems with processes. And then you're like, yeah. but I know what happens when we take this too far. Uh, so yeah. like, can we just like have a conversation about it and solve it with people regularly in the spirit, instead of having to have a letter of the law and yeah, it's complicated. Yeah. But I think then what helps is having parenting frameworks that you can then align with, you know, the school and give them techniques and help prevent. And actually like our biggest issue with all this stuff is like the IEPs and a lot of the stuff, you know, like the school often figures out like what to do once an issue is happening. But I'm like, the best thing to do is to prevent the issue from happening. Right. <laughs> Don't treat the symptom, treat the problem. Right. Yeah. So it's like, how do we help mitigate these issues before they get to this point? Mm-hmm. So it's like one of my favorite parenting books is how to talk. So your kids will listen and listen. So your kids will talk. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of what all of these like good parenting books and frameworks and stuff like that, I think have is like a series of things that help de-escalate situations as opposed to handling situations when they're escalated. And most of the time when my kids are breaking down and I'm with them, like I can probably track it back to how I've been a bad parent and like set us up in this situation. Like even when they're little, it's like, oh yeah, I probably should have fed them two hours ago and they're hungry and now we're in a situation where they aren't able to handle what we're doing. It doesn't feel normal to them. Their reaction's too big, but they're really just hungry. So, but right. now I have to deal with the fact that they're like throwing shit and angry <laughs> and yelling and yeah. won't listen to me and won't eat when I'm presenting them food. But like, if I had just taken care of this earlier, we'd have been fine. Yeah. Or one of the things, again, we like learned in preschool, but we always say take the limit to the child. So it's like, if you want your kids to stop doing something, you can yell at them from across the room and like, they don't listen to you. But if you like cross the room and you like get down on your knees, so your eye level and you like put a gentle hand on their shoulder and say like, Hey, I need you to not whatever lick the dog's face. It's not okay. The dog doesn't appreciate it. It's not healthy for you. The difference between that version of parenting and I'm making dinner and I don't feel like walking over there and I'm like, Miles, stop licking the dog's face. You get a totally different reaction. Yeah. Right. And we're all animals, right? So what separates us from like the animal animals is we can use our brain to overload that fight or flight reflex. Kids don't like know how to do that all the time. So once their brain is triggered, you can like yell at them all they want, but they like can't process information. You need to like get them back to a normal state, right? Mm-hmm. So, so you look at these things and you're like, well, if I trigger their brain, then obviously like they're not going to make the right reactions and I can't tell them what to do or like coach them on it when they're still pissed. So then you just have to like recognize, like you have to calm them back down. That's my, I'll take the limit to the child. I'll like reframe the situation. I don't need to like yell at them again for messing up because they like aren't going to learn that way. Mm-hmm. But then I can talk to them once I've like calmed them down and yep. like shown them what to do when like kids copy you. So, you know, like walk over to Miles, you put your hand on his shoulder, you're like down on your knee. And then you like, they take a deep breath and you're like, oh, oh yeah. yeah, you know? And then yep. you're just like, hey, bud, I don't want you to lick the dog. It's not healthy for you or for him. That's it. Yeah. 
works like a million times better. <laughs> and you're like, hey, that took 30 seconds while I was cooking. But if yeah. you compare that to like the alternative story where I'm like yelling miles five times, he doesn't do it. And then he gets pissed and he's like <laughs> running around the room. Right. Like it takes yeah. like 20 minutes of my life in the wrong direction. Yeah. Right. There's a lot of little things like that. I think, you know, the how to talk to my kids will listen to my kids would talk. I think like I would summarize their core framework as like teaching someone critical thinking by doing it with them. Mm-hmm. So if you look at that, if they would say like, you know, I want my kids to sit at the table while we're eating dinner together and not get up and like wander around the room and do other stuff and talk to me. That's going to be family dinner talking. Yep. Well, they don't. So I can keep yelling at them about it, but like that corrective thing doesn't work. So instead I get out a sheet of paper and I say, okay, I want to brainstorm with you guys. How do we all sit at the table and talk during dinner? Mm-hmm. Well, what you realize as you start to have that conversation is like, maybe that's an artificial constraint that you have. that's not necessarily fair. So what's the thing that you're really trying to optimize for? And maybe they say like, well, I don't really want to do that. Like, what do you want to do? Like, let's brainstorm a bunch of ideas. Let's just be generative right now. What do you, what would you like to do during dinner? Well, I I want to play on my tablet or have a movie on. Okay. Like I want to talk and hear about your day. And it's like, you know, I want to get through dinner quickly so we can move on to others, right? Like Mm -hmm. we'd like generate a list and then we can take that list and synthesize. Well, it's actually not okay for me if we have more tablet and screen time during dinner, but I'm okay on some nights to have tablet or screen time after dinner. And maybe once a week to have a special time where we can watch a movie while we're eating. Right. That would be like, okay with me. Well, it's not okay with me if I'm not allowed to get up during dinner. Okay. Well, maybe we can find like a compromise to that. Yeah. And you can like go through that critical thinking process together and be like, okay, so what we've said here, what I hear us saying is we're going to do like this and this and like, here's how it'll work. And then all of a sudden we can be like, okay, hey, we agreed on a set of rules and now we're not following them, right? So you are allowed to get up and grab a toy and come back. So you have something to fidget with because you want to do more than just eat, right? Like, but mm-hmm. now I see you're not doing that. You're playing at a different part of the house. So yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry, dad. Like, I know we agreed to that thing, right? Yeah. How do you take all these pieces together and make them work in synergy? Mm-hmm. It's easy, but then you can know that and still just be like, can you just sit at the table, please? While you're, yeah. This is driving me crazy. It's like, anytime you do that, you know you're making a mistake, but you do it anyway. Yes. Yeah. We're not perfect. Well, right. And I think that's a big part of it, too. By the way, incredible set of examples there. Thank you for sharing. And I think sitting down at the dinner table is one that a lot of people could relate to. I'm fairly certain. I know I can relate to it. But it's funny. I think it's also why in school, what they do in the first you know week of school is they sit down as a class and they come up with classroom agreements, right? Which is sort of like this sort of they're solving for the future. They don't have to have the issue happen before. But like, some teachers have figured this out, right? Because they spend tons of time with kids and stuff. So and what are your product principles? Exactly. 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 How do you say the same things again and again? Yeah. And I think even with kids, like vocabulary and all these things end up being really important. Yeah. So like through the autism diagnosis, we found this concept. Ooh, I forget what they're called. It's like a superhero version of emotional management. Mm Mm-hmm. And the idea is there's these like series of villains who 
sit inside your head and cause different behaviors. Mm-hmm. So, like, one of them is called Doff. They're the destroyer of fun. Okay. They're the one who makes you, like, flip the table when you're pissed mm-hmm. during a game that you're losing. Mm-hmm. And there's, like, Glass Man, where, like, a little thing happens, but you have, like, a huge reaction to it. Yeah. You know, there's, like, 10 or 20 of them, right? But even being able to say, like, hey, do we want to Doff this game? Is that a thing? I see us working towards that. Do we w- want to do that? Mm-hmm. And, like, being able to name that, in a way that's not, you know, what do we say at work? Talk about behaviors, not attributes. Yeah. You know, it's like having common vocabulary for these things and how we respond to it. Like all that stuff is still powerful Yeah, in all of these things. So like people at work don't like to know that the reason things that make you a good parent also make you a good manager. <laughs> right. But they're all related. Yeah. Like, oh, right. Like I should name these things. And, yes. You know, it's like, oh, kids like boundaries people work like boundaries like you know they make people feel safe like how do i think about establishing those boundaries and am i creating clarity i'm supposed to be great like it they both go back and forth right yeah i think you know i wrote a whole post about this right parenting class and management Mm -hmm. hard to think of your i think i asked you about this at one point you're like do you really want your employees to know that you know you treat them like you treat treat kids you treat them like children and i was like I don't have any problem with that at all. (laughs) So, well, I've taken up a ton of your time. I wanted to ask you one more question and then do a quick rapid fire round. Great. So I'm curious, it sounds like you and your partner agree and have a lot of frameworks that you've probably like built up together over the years. And I think parenting is all about partnership, consistency, right? Sharing one brain with your partner on this stuff. What's an area where you and your partner are at odds though? This happens in every household. Is there a particular area where you don't have the same philosophy when it comes to parenting? I think that much like at work, alignment is actually the most important thing Mm -hmm. and like commitment to that alignment. Mm -hmm. So I think like an area where relitigating right now is sleeping arrangements. Mm-hmm. So we co-slept with all of our kids. Mm-hmm. Our toddler still sleeps in a bed in our room. Mm-hmm. My other two kids have a bedroom downstairs, but they come up to our bed freely. Sure. So at times we will have entire weeks go by where like I wake up with five people in my bed and I am committed to this plan. Yeah. Disagree and commit. Yeah. Right? But now our dog, who's now a year and a half old, has been sleeping in our bathroom. And my wife's like, I think we should let him out so he can sleep in our bed. And I said, no, <laughs> I don't think we should. I will be okay with letting him out when there are kids not sleeping. Like, get two kids out of my bed and we can add one little dog, trade. Right? Yeah. And she's like, well, I don't understand. Are you like mad about this thing? And I'm like, I am aligned with you. I'm committed to it. I'm not changing it, but if we are going to reopen litigation on this issue, like, and she's like, well, I want to give the thing, the kids, the thing that they need. And I'm like, need is a strong word. Mm -hmm. They have a habit and a behavior Mm -hmm. that we aren't trying to alter. If you want to try and alter that behavior, I think we could succeed at doing that. Yeah. Do you want to do that? Like, are you open to doing that? And she's like, well, that's not our philosophy. I was like, we have a current philosophy. <laughs> it's working a current way. Yep. 
my constraint is I'm not adding more people to my bed. <laughs> and she's like, well, I could go sleep downstairs with kids and then duck in here. Like that also doesn't work for me. Right. Right. <laughs> because I like having a bed with you. Oh. And in fact, I imagine a day where we can have a bedroom by ourselves and not have to worry about any of the complexities of our life of like, you know, things that grown ups might want to use a bed for that mm-hmm. are a little harder when there's mm-hmm. a kid around. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, you know, you think about all these things and so like, that's probably like a current issue we are relitigating, yep. but the reality for me is I'm committed to, we made an agreement yep. I'm committed to that agreement. Right. Now, if we want to change the agreement, I have thoughts sure. right, that are different from what we do today, like learnings. And if I felt really strongly about it, we would talk about it, but we can't be in misalignment. Right. It doesn't work. Right. And much like I think I am religious at work about trying to align, realign, and not relitigate issues again and again, even when I disagree with them. And I see that power of like what it means for everyone to march together. I think the same thing is true at home. Mm-hmm. So like, if my wife is like, oh yeah, you can have extra tablet after dinner. I'm like, okay, you can have extra. I had other stuff I wanted to do yeah. with kids or like, I think they're doing it too much, but you've said it. So like, that's us. Mm-hmm. I'm going to back you on that. You know, you said the punishment is this thing. I don't think we should use that as a punishment. Maybe we'll talk about that later. Yeah. But like, once you put it out there, we are united front 100%. We're aligned. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a thing both of us are super good at. That's good. Requires a lot of checking in with your partner to be like, what was the conversation that you had about this with them? I find that that happens, especially as the kids get older when they're sort of like, mom said, and then you're like, let me go check in with mom on this to get to the source of information, you know? And I find that's, it's just a lot of good communication requires that to be in lockstep. Communication is like the most important thing that partners can do. And whenever I have friends who have not been married for as long as I am, and like I see the partners not communicating, I'm like, that relationship, you better, better fix, fix that, that problem. problem. Like that yeah. shit does not work. Don't talk through me. Don't tell me about it. Like go fucking talk to them. <laughs> That's like the important thing. And every relationship I know that really like functions well has communication and alignment. Yep. It's like it's two principles. And a divorce lawyer once said, 100% of all divorces happen because of misaligned or unspoken expectations. And I think that is true for all relationships. Misaligned or unspoken expectations fuck up all relationships, work, personal life, whatever. So it's all about communications, expectation alignment, and then like staying true to those things like again and again. All right. Well, with that, I hope you have a few minutes for rapid fire. I'm going to ask you a question or say a statement. I want you to respond with the first thing that comes to mind as quickly as possible. Here we go. Number one, most indispensable parenting product you have ever purchased. Food. Food. Okay. <laughs> most most useless parenting product you have ever purchased. Most of them. I don't know. Like, Do you have a favorite child and does it depend on the day? Probably the first one. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, you just, they've been with them the longest. All right. But they're all awesome. They're all my favorites. As the book says, most frustrating thing that has ever happened to you as a dad. Dealing with schools for Mm. anything, but especially dealing with special needs. Okay. 
What's your go-to dad wardrobe? I mean, shorts and a t-shirt. Awesome. Cargo shorts and a t-shirt. Cargo shorts. Yeah. There you go. Have you ever dropped one of your kids as a baby? Yeah, of course. Okay. You say that? Slippery little buggers. <laughs> they are. Good thing they're made of rubber. How many yeah. parenting books do you have in your house? So my wife is a doula oh. now. Okay. So I don't know. If you include birth, 70. Okay. If you include audiobooks, probably like well over 100. Wow. Favorite dad parenting book? Not close, having read lots of them. Yeah. The Birth Partner by Penny Simpkins. Yes, I read that. We had a doula for our, we had a hospital birth for both of our kids, but we also had a doula in the hospital with us. And I read that yeah. book. That is like the doula training manual. It's the doula training manual, but it is definitely the best birth book for dads. Absolutely. No questions asked. How many parenting books of this hundred plus have you actually read cover to cover? Two. Okay. I'm not a cover to cover kind of guy. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Same thing would be true of tech books, by the way. Okay. Okay. You're more of a hunt and peck, like find the thing you need. Yeah. And science fiction, fantasy novels, I've like maybe not completed two of them. Okay. But like nonfiction, my yeah. completion rate is horrendous. Yeah. Got it. So you've got kids that are three, seven, nine, almost 10. What's been the favorite age that your kids are? Six. Six. Why six? I didn't find the terrible twos so bad. Mm -hmm. It's like babies, a lot of work. One-year-old, a lot of work. Terrible twos, kind of famous. They weren't so bad for us. The three-nager, especially for boys, you like really feel that one. The fucking fours, those are the worst. Like, (laughs) no questions asked. Mm -hmm. Because kids are sociopaths, right? So like that four-year-old just smart enough that you like think they're logical. They'll be like, hey, dad, if I push this face off the table, it's going to shatter. Well, that's right, kid. That's right. And you're just like, what the fuck were you thinking right now? Like, why did you just do that? What is going on? You know uh, what I mean? And like, yeah. that was hard, right? Yeah. And then five, you're like, oh my God, you're like, this is changing again. Yeah. And then six, they're like a good human again. Yeah. And I understand that runs to like, the tweety years. So okay. I guess my older one's probably like heading out of it. Yep. And then we have teenagers, but like, I think like six through 11 right here is pretty great. Okay, cool. Cool. I was going to ask you your least favorite age, but you just covered everything up to six. So I feel Fucking like fours. The fours. Okay. Yeah. The fours we've named it. Yeah. Thoughts on screen time. Good, bad, indifferent. Valuable. Valuable. Okay, good. I like that. And then final one. What's your take on minivans? I have one. So you are you pro minivan? A huge pro minivan. I'm, I'm not like a car person, right? So okay. like, I think a minivan is amazing. Awesome. Love it. Love it. Thank you for listening to today's conversation with Matt Greenberg. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, share, and leave me a review. It'll help other people find this podcast. Startup Dad is a Fishman AF production with editing support from Tommy Heron. You can also stay up to date on my thoughts on growth, product, and parenting by subscribing to the Fishman AF newsletter at www.fishmanafnewsletter.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.